Father God, we want to ask that you'd be gracious to us in this hour. Uh, Otherwise, it'll be in vain. Um, We are surely gathered to have good food together. Please bring that to us. Please inform us of the way that we should go as we watch you walk in righteousness and obedience here on this earth. Help us to meditate on you who is holy. Help us to understand things that will correct and inform our hearts and our minds. And let uh, let us gain a greater view of who you are through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you have heard of these people, but there is a certain kind of sect or offshoot or part of the Pentecostal church that likes to handle poisonous snakes. And uh, they do so because of uh, what we read in, I believe, Mark 16 about how you'll, you'll step on vipers and won't succumb to their bites or something like that. It's, it's a promise for God to kind of continue the, the propagation or the, the outflow of his word through his apostles by guarding them from anything that would be harmful or silence their message. But they've taken this quite literally, and so their church services are filled with people handling poisonous snakes, snakes um, dancing around with them, draping them around their neck, all that sort of thing. Um, there's approximately 125 churches in the United States that do this. Most of the time, they're breaking the law uh, by handling these snakes, um, but some states, I guess, don't have such laws, and so they're doing this. They're doing this with rattlesnakes and all sorts of vipers, and, and they have snake rooms in their churches. Anyways, that's a long story about something so ridiculous, but what's, what's amazing is people die. Shocking, right? I mean, they're handling snakes. The congregation will even grab the snake from the pastor, and multiple people have died. Multiple pastors have died from this. And I bring that up because there's a, a very fine distinction between testing God and living according to faith in His Word. And there's a lot of word work and understanding and study that has to be done to make sure we don't do stuff like that. That we don't pick up poisonous snakes and say, hey, God says I'll be okay. And if I die, then that was, I I died in faith, they'll say. But we don't want to do that. I don't know if it runs through your mind, but it runs through my mind all the time that, I want to be more informed on what he has said very plainly and very clearly so that as I continue to walk in faith, the hope of things not seen, I'm doing so legitimately and logically and not erroneously. 
And so this next temptation that Satan throws at Jesus is an attempt to get him to do that very thing, to test God, to test his Father. This is obviously easily thwarted, repelled by Jesus, but you have to understand through these temptations how Satan likes to go about his business, so to speak. And if this is what he's using on Jesus, whom he knows to be the Son of God, what do you think he's going to use on you? So each of these temptations are very important to remember the strategy employed and also the answer that Jesus gives. And in this one, it's a very simple, short answer. And there's several reasons for that. But verse 5 of chapter 4 then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple, I think, is somewhere around the northeast corner of the temple. And it would have been a pillar about 300 feet high. So that's where Jesus is. That's where Satan is. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. <coughs> so, this seems like an odd temptation. But Satan's got a little more, more knowledge than we would have at this point. I think Satan understands the trajectory of Jesus' mission. I think Satan understands what's at stake should he complete his mission. And so he tempts him with performing a feat that only he could perform. He is trying to tell him that, hey, Scripture's pointing to you here, Jesus. Psalm 91, that's about you. So if you did this, and if God said that, then everything should be okay in your flesh, right? Not only that, but playing off of what's coming after this, <clears throat> Satan is also trying to uh, get him to present himself to the world in this way. Which is really important because as we walk through this gospel in particular, you're going to see how Jesus chooses to present himself to the world. He'll heal many, thousands of people. He'll raise Lazarus from the dead. He'll do all sorts of amazing, miraculous things. <clears throat> but just to do a stunt, to, to gain a following from that temple crowd, is not something he's interested in. Also, the whole thrust of these temptations here in the wilderness is, is Satan trying to get Jesus to uh, shorten or lessen his suffering as he's on mission for the Lord. You ever thought about that being a temptation? Trying to shorten your suffering? <clears throat> It'd be human nature, right? To avoid suffering, to get out of suffering, all that sort of thing. But that's kind of the thrust of the whole temptation that Satan is using here. You don't have to do this. And I would say that that also applies to us that when we are in a situation when we are uh, obeying 
following faithfully the Lord, when we are obeying what He's commanded, when we are uh, <clears throat> standing for righteousness and we're suffering for it, persecuted for it, and we're tempted to move out of that. How would you move out of that? Deny Christ? Stop talking? Stop uh, being known as a Christian by attending church and praying and all that sort of stuff? The temptation would be to ease the pain. And it's interesting that Jesus is very well aware that he is not to give in to that. Because he trusts God. He trusts that this is for a reason. He not only that, but even if you go to Psalm 91, which Satan is using to tempt Jesus, he trusts that God is with him in the trouble. <clears throat> Towards the end of Psalm 91, the psalmist understands that the Lord is with him in trouble. And that there is deliverance and there is uh, recompense or retaliation for enemies. There is special wrath stored up for those who persecute the people, the church of God. All those things are far more important than feeling better physically. What we do in times of temptation to lessen our suffering or let go of our faith will define what kind of faith we actually have. And if you're worried how you might crumble under such circumstances, whatever the case they may be, I would take heart if I were you because if the Spirit of Christ lives in you, then the Spirit of Christ is one that obeys the Father, believes the Father at all times, despite the fact that intense suffering is happening. So you can be a Paul and a Silas in prison, and you can see, and you can pray, and you can wait in chains. That's the hardest part about suffering, right? Waiting for it to end. We don't get to make that timeline. It's a hard pill to swallow. But your faith has to look beyond that. Your faith has to look beyond circumstances. I think if there's one big takeaway from the Apostle Paul that we get in the Scriptures is that he had an eye that went far beyond the suffering. That he had an eye on eternal things. That in fact, all the men of faith in the Bible are the same type of men. They had an eye on what is eternal. What's eternal is the glory and the presence of God in a state of perfection and eternal intimacy with Him, free from pain and struggle and strife and suffering. But we're not there. But we also should know the promise that even all that we experience here, He's still using for good for some eternal purpose. You have, to, you have to believe in those things if you are a Christian. Otherwise, the moment suffering comes, you'll be like one of those seeds in the parable of the sower that gets trampled underfoot or the birds eat up. You'll be one that proves to have no faith. And I'll say this, it's actually impossible for us to tell 100% if you are a born-again believer or not? You know how we're going to tell? 
at the end of all things when you have persevered in faith. That's how we know. Is if you've made it to the end. And God's people will make it to the end because he will, what, be with them in their trouble. Jesus is not in the wilderness necessarily alone. He knows who went out there with him. It says he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. It doesn't say the Spirit left him. He's there. Ministering to him, reminding him. He knows what's true and he invests in that instead of trying to get out of his present suffering. I think Christian maturity comes when you are interested more in glorifying God and obeying Him instead of bettering your suffering. It's, it's, it's kind of like when you hear great people of faith go through sickness, illness, loss, stuff like that, and, and their main focus is how will God be glorified in this? And their peace is in the fact that he will see to it. Their peace is in the fact that he's with them. Their peace is in the fact that he will use this for good. And they more than approve of being used as a vessel of righteousness. They're glad to be there in his hands for that purpose. This, this is Philippians 3.10. Paul hopes that he may share in his sufferings because he understands and has probably been told the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to, that there's a reward, right, for suffering on his behalf. You know what the reward is? It's him. You know what he has? An eternal inheritance and glory. So, according to 1 Peter 8 and 9, we hope in what we don't yet see. And we love him, even though we don't see him. And we know that we're going to obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our bodies. And so we don't worry about, or we try not to, the uh, avoiding suffering here. You and I in our current context really don't have to worry about avoiding suffering. It just doesn't really come. It comes in some ways. Persecution, for righteousness' sake, comes in some ways. When you are living according to the faith, when you are obeying the promises and the commands of God, some people just won't like it. It'll either look silly to them, it'll cause you to say no to things, it'll just make you different in those ways. And that will offend people. They'll get all bent out of shape by meditating on what you're doing or not doing. That convicts them of what's ever going on in their own hearts that makes them miserable or sad or unhappy or hopeless or lacking peace. And that's okay. You're called to remain steadfast in those things despite what comes. Because ultimately comes the reward. Ultimately, 
comes the, the realization of what you've hoped for all along. And that's what we're, that's what we're aiming for. So the, one of the big problems with our faith is that we don't look towards the end enough. I had this thought the other day. I would almost go as far as to say that Paul was looking forward to dying. I won't say it, but I would almost get there. Because he understands that he doesn't understand how great the gain is. He, he's viewing this as so temporary that it's not worth comparing to the glory that's to come. He's looking ahead in faith in a way that I think is unparalleled because of what he had to endure. So he's longing for it. So verse 11 of Philippians 3, that by any means necessary I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is he saying there? He's saying, however I get to death means resurrection from the dead. Because I'm not just going to die. Right? Because Jesus lives, I live. So however I can get there, that's how I'll attain the resurrection. Meanwhile, we're going to share in his sufferings. And there's glory in it. There's goodness in it. There's joy in it. Now, what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is place himself in unnecessary danger. Unnecessary danger. That's something that we don't want to do. Because that is testing God. There's a difference. Unnecessary danger versus walking in faith. Handling poisonous snakes is unnecessary danger. And it's a misunderstanding of the Bible. Taking the gospel into a forbidden country may be necessary danger. Um, praying for a suffering co-worker at work may be necessary danger. And the list can go on. But we want to avoid unnecessary danger and make sure that we're understanding what this is. So notice, he's always jabbing him with this, if you are the Son of God. <laughs> Satan wants to see it. He wants to see him proclaim his glory and his majesty and his power as he's come here on earth. Jesus is here <coughs> as a servant. He tells his people that. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he's illustrating that towards the end of his life here by putting on the apron and washing his disciples' feet. Unless I do this, he tells Peter, you won't be clean. Unless I serve you, unless I go through this, unless I show you, it won't happen. So he's not here to be glorified yet. He's enduring all this because he knows that's coming. But right now, he's a servant. And according to Isaiah, like chapter 40, 42 through... I think maybe 56, 
He is the suffering servant. What a title to have, huh? Would you want to take that on your shoulders and do that? That's what he is. So, yeah, he's the son of God. He doesn't have to validate that for anybody. But he's the the son of God who is a suffering servant. And listen, he's going to do greater things than this. If he jumped off of a tower 300 feet and landed, people would be mind blown, right? But he's going to call people out of the dead. He's going to wake uh, sick people up. He's going he's to multiply loaves and fish. He's going to do amazing things. And, and people will follow him. But when he gets to the cross, how many are left? A handful. He knows that. That they'll demand a sign, but it won't mean anything to them. They have to have a new heart if they want to follow me. Because following Jesus is what? Taking up your cross. And who's going to do that for somebody that they just think is awesome? Like, he does cool stuff. In layman's terms. But if he is Savior, Lord, King, then people will do that if they see him as that. But if they just see him as some sort of awesome holy man, that's not enough. He knows that. So, this is Satan's attempt to twist Scripture. Um, and he does it in an interesting way. Compare the Garden of Eden to this. In the Garden of Eden, Satan is telling Adam and Eve, or asking them, did God say? He's questioning, right? Did God really say? Is that what he meant? What's his motive for that? Here, as he's dealing with Jesus, he's like, no, God did say, right? Therefore, you could do this. See the subtle scripture twist? He'll either call you to question and doubt God's word, or he'll call you to test it when you shouldn't test it. Jesus said to him, verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know what happened in the Exodus when they tested God? Not good things. Exodus 17, 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Skip to verse 7 of Exodus 17. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, is the Lord going to do what he can do to give us what we want or not? Is he going to be our favorite genie wishing lamp or not? This is the temptation here. To, to, to make God's will bend to ours. That's not how it goes. Our will comes under subjection to His. First of all, number one, you cannot uh, manipulate God's will. You cannot. So why even try? 
And number two, his will is perfect. So why would you want to? This is what the prosperity gospel and stuff does. It makes, it makes God have to, even though I'm just speaking metaphorically here, it makes God have to do what we want him to do. Therefore, they have no theology of suffering. They have no understanding of what Jesus is doing here. Because whatever they want, they just ask God for, and if they believe it, then they're supposed to receive it, right? No. God's will is not that. God's will is our sanctification, which is his conforming us to the image of his son. And how did Jesus learn obedience? He learned it through the things that he suffered. So how are we going to learn obedience? How are we going to learn faith through the things we suffer? Therefore, that gospel is not a gospel. It's a lie. In 1 Corinthians 10, 9, Paul reminds the Corinthians because of their idolatry, their temptation to be idolizers. He says in verse 9, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So the context of 1 Corinthians, he's warning them against idolatry. It's easy for them to fall away into it. Corinth is full of idols and all sorts of stuff going on in the streets that we couldn't even imagine today. And he's telling them, don't put Christ to the test by doing what you know you shouldn't do and assuming that God's grace is going to be with you even though you do it. Because in Numbers 21, you know what happens in Numbers 21? There's an interesting problem that they have. They begin to grumble again, like we just read in Exodus 17. In Numbers 21.5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. God just gave them water at Meribah and manna, and they hate it. God fed them. They have no taste for it. That would be akin to us um, rejecting his word. <laughs> he feeds us with it. Worthless food. They're grumbling against him. So they get bit by fiery serpents that the Lord sent among them, and many died. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and what? Live. That's a reference or a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Jesus. He's the one they're going to, we're going to look to and live. 
but look how he's going to be lifted up. It's not, it's not through making much of himself so that the people lift him up. No. The people are going to do what people are going to do. They're going to hate him. They're going to reject him. They're going to bring him suffering and pain. But he's going to bring them healing. The people in, in, in Numbers 21 are being bit because they have sinned and grumbled and blasphemed <coughs> against the Lord. Then what? They repent and God has mercy by healing them from his own judgment. So what's that speak of? That speaks of Jesus, who is lifted up on a cross to heal his people. Whoever would look to that sufferer on the cross, you'll be healed from sin and death which reigns over you. You'll, you'll not escape suffering. He's suffering. Look to him. He's, he carried a cross there to be nailed to it. Look at him. But if you do that, you'll be healed of the disease that has been wrought in your heart that has caused you death. And he's going to be that figure for us. He's doing that. He's submitting himself to experience in this world whatever he's called to go through in order that he would accomplish what God has told him he will accomplish. If we're following in his footsteps and, and doing the same type of thing, then we're supposed to experience that same type of We're supposed to look towards what's greater than this. Whether you're suffering or whether you're enjoying. You're supposed to look forward to what's greater than that. John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He knows what he's come for. He knows what he's going to do. And he knows how he's going to be lifted up. So he's enduring for righteousness sake. He's rejecting any attempt by Satan to get him to bring glory to himself. He's going to allow the glory to come from the only place that glory comes from. God. And he trusts wholeheartedly that as he follows and obeys faithfully, that he will receive that reward and that his people will receive his righteousness. And so I hope we endure um, temptations this way. I hope we endure suffering on his behalf this way. But you have to be sure of what's to come. If you're not sure of what's to come, I'd love to talk to you about that. Or you can read about it. For those who believe, Paul's great treasure is the hope of the resurrection. 
in Jesus, seeing his Savior face to face because he's received that resurrection. I don't know what your hope is. But if it's not that, then when suffering comes, as it surely will, you will crumble. And you'll be left hopeless. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so I pray that it's not for you. So respond to the Lord, and then we'll stand and sing.